0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.
1: Before we get into the message, I will be doing the Bible reading, so um, please read along. I'll be reading from the NIV. We're starting in Exodus 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And our second reading today is Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God that the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him.
0: Well, good morning, uh, church. We're uh, in a new series. We've just started it last week. Last week was an introduction really to our new series in the Ten Commandments called The Good Life. Uh, Today we come to commandment number one. Um, And uh, before we get into that, let's pray together as God's people. Father, we praise you that you are the God who has revealed yourself in time and space. You are our good, good Father who speaks to us now. Words that your children need to be shaped, to be formed into your people. Father, we pray that you would speak. Uh, You are the Lord, our God, who has brought us out of slavery to sin and death. Help us to listen to you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen idols, goddesses, gods. It's language, right, that once seemed to kind of belong to more primitive kind of peoples, or or maybe language that kind of belonged in that dusty Bible that belongs on your study bookshelf or your lounge room, whatever it might be. Um, but it's fascinating, I think, to see that the language of idols and gods and goddesses and things like that is kind of creeping back into modern day popular culture. Um, we have pop idols. We have immunity idols. We have sex goddesses, so I'm told. Fashion idols. We have sporting idols. It's a word that's out there in the pop culture. The trouble is though, right, when biblical words are kind of picked up by modern culture, words like sin and idols and that sort of thing, they tend to trivialize something that is actually very serious and important. So important that it's the focus of the first commandment in the list of 10 commandments that God gave to his people at Mount Sinai. It's also the focus of the first commandment that we read of in the law documented for us in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, It's the same words that Jesus from Deuteronomy quoted uh, when he was asked, um, what is the key commandment? And Jesus says, the key is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. It's also, if you noted in the second reading, what Jesus said to Satan in the wilderness, that we are to worship the Lord alone and him only should we serve. It's a serious issue. It's an important issue. And yet for the Old Testament Israelites, God's original people, it was a constant struggle. It was a battle for them between their God, the only God, Yahweh, the living God, and the gods of the nations around Israel. They struggled with it all the time they would go after all the other gods around them now I've just got a bunch of questions that I want us to think through together this morning around this first commandment where we're told you shall have no other gods before me and my first question is this why not why not have other gods before Yahweh Why is there this sharp, persistent demand in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, to worship only the living God and to have no other gods but Yahweh? Well, first reason is this, because Yahweh alone, according to Exodus chapter 20, was their redeemer. You see this at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the very first thing in the Ten Commandments is not a commandment at all. Um, they begin with a statement, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of." Of slavery. You see, God's law was given to people who God had already saved, already liberated, already rescued. The grace of God, the gospel of God comes before the gift of the law. That's why I'm often saddened when I walk into you know big old churches and things like that, and you look on the walls, and on the walls they have the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer etched into the wall. And when you go and have a look at the Ten Commandments, the first thing it says is, you shall have no other gods before me. They don't have verse 2 first. In other words, the law is there, but the gospel isn't there. You see, it's the great event, the exodus, in which Yahweh proved his reality, in which Yahweh proved he really was a god unlike all the other so-called gods of Egypt. And so Moses says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the next generation of God's people, he says this, you Israelites, you were shown all these things. That is the power of God in the Exodus, the power of God at Mount Sinai. You were shown these things so that you will know that the Lord alone is God in heaven above and on earth beneath, and there is no other. Isaiah, hundreds of years later, um, says this, God says to Isaiah, I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I'm not some foreign God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. So this call to worship no other gods but Yahweh is a call to loyalty. It's a call to gratitude for what God has done for his people in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, freeing them from oppression. I am the Lord, your God. Don't have any other gods before my face. So second, secondly, it's because the Lord alone is their creator. Um, to jump a little bit ahead to next week, uh, commandment number two, Exodus chapter 20, verse four, the text says this, do not make any images of anything in heaven or on earth or in the waters or the sea. Why not? Well, because God alone is the creator of heaven and earth and everything in them. The Israelites, they knew this really well, right? Their scriptures didn't begin with the book of Exodus. Their scriptures begin with the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So there is a contrast, right, between the living God, God the creator, Yahweh, and all the other false gods who not only haven't created anything themselves but who are themselves the products of human beings, human hands, human imaginations, ideologies, worldviews that displace and replace God. Or as the prophet Jeremiah later would say, Jeremiah chapter 10, the Lord is the true God, the eternal king, These other gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, they will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. So for these good reasons, right, God says to his people, look, you know who I am. You know what I've done. Don't go running after other gods, the gods of the people around you. To which the Israelites said, sure, of course, Why would we ever think of doing anything but trusting you, Yahweh? They actually said it twice in the Old Testament scriptures, right? Exodus 24. After God has given them the Ten Commandments, as God has effectively kind of married this people, they say, everything the Lord has said we will do. Joshua chapter 24, the new generation of the Israelites, said the same thing. Joshua, their leader, challenged them to to worship the living God alone and not be like their forefathers, their ancestors who chased after the other gods. And what do they say? Yep, we'll do that, Joshua. We're all for God. Absolutely. We'll never run after other gods. But they did. Persistently, consistently, for centuries. The Old Testament tells us these people of God went on claiming to be the people of Yahweh and all that that meant, and yet they were being seduced by all the gods and the idols around them, and that became a form of what we call syncretism, blending the worship of the living God with the worship of everything else around them, which of course is what we Christians have done throughout the ages as well. There are all kinds of hidden and sometimes unrecognized idolatries that seep into our thinking and transform our behavior. Why have no other gods? Because the Lord is the loving Redeemer of his people and he has created us. The other question that comes to mind when I think about this commandment you know, you shall have no other gods before me, before my face is what are the other gods anyway? Like What are these other gods that God says you're not to have before me? Uh, most often in the Old Testament, right, the gods of the other nations are described as no gods. Um, you'll see that throughout the literature of the Old Testament. Um, in fact, they are the work of human hands. They are no gods. Now, by that, they did not only mean that you know, they're, they're, they're statues of the other gods that have been carved out of part of a tree to look like a particular god whom people would bow down to. Even the pagans, right, knew that that was not a real god because it was carved from a tree um, that you've, carved, you've cut down. What this is actually saying is that these alleged gods themselves, these, the supposed powers, the ideas, the imagination, all those things that were given a kind of divine power are actually nothing but human constructs. We make our own gods. We manufacture them out of our imagination. That's what Paul the Apostle kind of clearly tells to us in Romans chapter 1. He said that we human beings, because we've rejected the authority of our loving creator God, we who we we know, who we can know because of what we see in creation, he said we've become darkened in our thinking. It's our minds that create our own idolatry. Uh, The great John Calvin said this, quote, "'The human mind, the human heart,' is a perpetual factory of idols, 24-7. He didn't actually say that last bit, but our our minds are perpetual idol factories, non-stop. Our human hearts, our minds are manufacturing idols all the time. Um, Tim Keller, in his excellent book, and by the way, it would be a great thing for us as a church if you've been blessed by the ministry of Tim Keller to pray for Tim Keller, who's uh, recently been diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer. Um, Not a good diagnosis. We don't know what's going on, but he's a man who God has used in many lives that I know of in our church and beyond, and so we should pray for him. But notwithstanding that, Tim Keller in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex and Power and the Only Hope that Matters, defines an idol like this. He says, an idol is, quote, anything more important to you than God anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God anything you seek to give you what only God can give an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts if I have that then I'll feel my life has meaning then I'll know I have value then I'll feel significant and secure end of quote now we are forever creating idols these little gods And there are many ways in which we do this, brothers and sisters. There are many sources for this. And here are just three, and they come from actually the Bible. They're all in the Bible. Three things, things that entice us, things that scare us, and things that are actually even good for us. We can turn into little gods. So things that entice us, right? So Moses, God's great leader of his people, uh, back in Deuteronomy 4.19, warns the Israelites when he says this, when you look up at the sky and you see the sun in its splendor, do not be enticed, seduced into worshipping these things. You see, we human beings, we are pretty small creatures in the scheme of things, right? In this vast world, full of huge world, full of big things, When we see these big things, we're filled with awe and wonder and fascination, and that's a right thing to do. But we can be dazzled by these things where our eyes just pop out in wonder, a bit like the children in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right, who just seal this chocolate phone and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, this is the best thing I've ever seen, and just become overwhelmed. The natural world can do that where the sun, the moon and the stars, we can begin to idolise that more than the creator. We can also be dazzled and enticed by the phenomenon of wealth or by phenomenal wealth and we can give god-like status to the super rich and we somehow assume right that because they've been able to accumulate vast quantities of money they must also have vast quantities of wisdom as well we can idolize wealth we talk about stars right sports stars superstars celebrities sports idols pop idols they dazzle us There are also things that scare us, or perhaps to be more accurate, things that we trust in order to save us from the things that scare us. So we human beings, not only are we very small creatures, we are also quite vulnerable creatures. And the world around us can be dangerous. There are all kinds of threats. The Old Testament recognises this, right? And it calls upon us to fear The Lord, as the old hymn puts it, fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear because we do have plenty of things to fear. Psalm 96 says that we should fear the Lord above all gods as if there are other things that we are afraid of. And so we create gods or idols to give us protection to ward off our worst nightmares. So we're scared of disease and death, COVID-19, and rightly so, So we put our faith in medicine and in doctors and healthcare professionals. And those professionals, those doctors, somehow then become like priests and gurus of an almost religious belief that we can somehow solve the problems. We're scared of the natural world. We're scared of all the unpredictable dangers. So we place our faith in technology and science, good things. But somehow we have such confidence in them that we think they they can solve all our problems. And despite repeatedly saying they can't. And of course, we're scared of our enemies, right? So we put our faith in security and military hardware and in almost unimaginable expenditure on weapons of death and destruction. So you see, our fears can easily turn good things like medicine and science or evil things like instruments of death and torture into gods that we've placed our faith in that those things will provide us with ultimate security and protection. So we have things that entice us, things that scare us, and third, and perhaps paradoxically, things that actually are good for us. God has put us in a good creation, and there are many good gifts in his creation. But instead of using the good gifts that God has given us, as God intended them to be used as means by which we can serve God and worship God and bring glory to him. Instead, we use God and worship creation. We turn God's good gifts into idols. So work, work is a good thing, but it can so easily come to dominate a person's life. It can become addictive and it can squeeze out everything else, including God and family and a whole bunch of other things. Sex. Sex is a good thing. God thinks it's good. He created it. It was his idea and yet we all know how sex has become one of the most saturating idolatries of our world and our culture. The body. The body is a good thing and again God created our bodies and yet we squander billions of dollars in a kind of idolatry that seeks to fiddle around with all sorts of products and procedures and processes to govern its shape its size its strength and its smell the idolatry of the body well wealth wealth is a good thing right we talk about material goods because they are good and yet we have created a we are, and yet we have created in our culture a whole toxic idolatry a religion effectively of consumerism where shopping centers are now temples And our worship is shopping and possessing and accumulating in a way that somehow is linked to our very existence, our value and our worth. I could go on and on and on. The reality is, right, we are surrounded by all kinds of other gods, the gods of the people around us, just as much as the Old Testament Israelites were. And the thing is, we Christians are just as likely to be blind to the idols, those little gods in our lives. And so we need to pray. And again, I hope this series right, will help us with a kind of a divine discernment where the Lord will help us to see where the tentacles of idolatry have kind of gripped us and changed us. I, I, want us, I, I pray that will happen both personally for me and for you, but also for us as a church at City Light Church North Adelaide. Um, back in 2010, uh, a bunch of Christian leaders from around the globe um, got together for the, La- for the Lausanne Conference. that uh, was in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, and as a result of the conference, they kind of, they made the Cape Town statement. And part of that statement was a commitment of, as God's people to kind of seek to identify where our worship has drifted from worship of the true and living God to our worship of other things. Uh, this is what they said. Quote, We challenge one another to face up to the extent, consciously or unconsciously, where we are caught up in idolatries of our surrounding culture. We pray for prophetic discernment, to identify and expose such false gods and their presence within the church itself, and for courage to repent and renounce them in the name and authority of Jesus as Lord. You know, The other night we were praying um, on Tuesday night for our church at our regular Tuesday night prayer meeting and one of the big themes that came up was the theme of revival. You know, we long for revival. We long for people to, to turn and trust the Lord Jesus Christ and find life and freedom and forever life in, in him. But, but one of the things that, I was, that came to me was that sense of before we can see revival out there, there's got to be a sense of revival in us. Where rather than us chasing after other gods, we we run afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like that Lausanne statement that we would too face up to the extent, consciously or unconsciously, where we're caught up in idolatries. However, right, the question I also have is like if we are surrounded by all these gods if they're almost unavoidable because we live in this world and this world is a broken world, it's a fallen world, you might ask, does it really matter? Like, why the big deal about idolatry? If it's just everywhere and everyone's doing it, what's the big guide? What's the big problem? Why does idolatry matter? Well, I want to give three quick answers to why this issue matters and why we need to take it seriously. And the first reason is this. Idolatry deprives God of his glory. Idolatry deprives God of his glory. And God says through Isaiah, I am the Lord, Yahweh, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Now we might be tempted to think there, right? Come on, that sounds like a little bit of divine selfishness going on there. Why can't God just kind of share a bit of his glory with some of these other so-called Gods, What makes God so selfish, so intolerant? But that misses the whole point. And it misses the point that the Bible is basically trying to make on every single page of our Bibles is that God is the only God there is. And he is all the God there is. He is the creator of the whole universe and the so-called other gods. There are no gods at all. Not only that, but he's the lover of the universe. The Lord loves everything he has made, Psalm 145. And we, his creatures, were made lovingly in his image. And in that sense, God's greatest glory lies in our greatest love for him and our finding our joy and fulfillment in him and him alone, which is what he wants for us. And it's actually what is best for us it's in our best interest, brothers and sisters, to love him, to serve him, to enjoy him, to worship him, to, to share him and to give him glory. That's what we're made for. So when anything from within creation, whether good gifts from God's hands or evil products of our own imagination, when anything is put in place that only in the place that only God has the right to be in, then God suffers. Um, we suffer and creation suffers and that's because of the second reason i want to give us not only only does idolatry deprive god of his glory but idolatry demands a really high price it demands a very high price see the gods demand sacrifices and the fact is that when we humans create gods we fight to the death to defend them We will pay whatever sacrifices they demand of us, believing they will deliver to us something. And so we fight to defend them politically, economically, socially, literally. And the Old Testament right, was well aware of this. God warned his people, Israel, um, about the idolatry of Baal. Um, I don't know if you know much about Baal, but among other things, Baal was the god of sex and fertility, and the worship of Baal was at the cost of ritual prostitution and sacrificing of children. Baalism is alive and well in our culture. We worship the idolatry of sex and the addiction of lust, and the cost we pay is the abuse of children. The proliferation of pornography, the objectification largely of women, and sex trafficking, just to name a few. You see, idolatry costs lives. God warned the Israelites again and again about the idolatry. Of greed, Isaiah condemned those who were consumed with accumulating land and wealth and houses and in so doing were pushing the poor further, further down the pile to the bottom and to the edges of society where they had pretty much nowhere to live at all. They were homeless. And we live in an idolatrous unquestioned adherence to an economic system that allows and even encourages the super wealthy to accumulate more and more and more and more and the poor are squeezed out of the little they already have and the reality is right we live in a time of inequality between the wealthy and the poor in australia like we've never seen before idolatry of greed costs lives hosea he preached that rampant immorality in the land of Israel was actually causing the land itself to moan and groan. The animals, the fish, the birds were suffering. He sees the connection between human idolatry and ecological destruction. And today, surely it is the case that the toxic religion of consumerism and its idolatry of perpetual economic growth relentless use of fossil fuels the addiction to our addiction to cheap food and cheap clothing these things are costing the earth almost literally with the effects of climate change or pushing the limits of our planet's sustainability the idolatry of consumerism costs lives and jesus said whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword putting his finger on the idolatry of violence and today The idolatry of the gun is passionately and powerfully defended in parts of our world no matter how many deaths pile up with a relentless, horrifying regularity. Idolatry costs lives. So it matters because it deprives God of his glory. Idolatry matters because it demands a very high price that costs lives. And thirdly, it matters because idolatry deceives and it disappoints. In the end, false gods always fail. That's why they're false. And that's the only thing we can trust about false gods is that they will, in the end, fail you. They will fail me. They promise everything, just as the serpent promised Eve everything in the Garden of Eden. But they lie. They promise life. They deliver death. And yet we go on investing in them no matter how many times they let us down. We go on doing the same thing again and again and again and again. And and we're still doing it. That's what happens when you put your ultimate trust in something that is ultimately not God. All our gods have failed. All our gods have failed. That's a quote. The last line of an article, an editorial, in the independent newspaper in February 1993, almost 30 years ago. It was an editorial responding to the murder, the, the horrific murder of little Jamie Bulger, a little toddler killed at the hands of two year ten-year-old boys in the UK. The whole nation, right, the whole world was shocked by this. There were thousands of editorials asking the question like, what's gone wrong? must be someone's fault. Maybe it's our fault. The editorial lamented the fact that as a nation, the UK quote, expected better of ourselves. We have come to fail at every level of society. And what I'm about to read, the closing comments, could have been written this year, I reckon, even though this was written about 30 years ago. Quote, increasingly it is apparent that those who instruct the nation on moral and social values are themselves flawed. And then he quotes a number or a series of scandals at that time which are comparable with the scandals that we see in our time uh, in politics, in parliament, among the police force, among celebrities. It goes on, quote, "'Failings in the city, in the company boardrooms, in Whitehall offices,' We no longer trust or admire our rulers, our bankers, our captains of industry. We no longer trust each other. We are all on the make. We're all looking out for ourselves. And it concludes like this. If we feel utter despair, it's because we see no new promise. All our gods have failed. That was close to 30 years ago. It was striking then. It's striking today. And you know what? The author of that editorial with that line, all our gods have failed, I think he was just using that as a figure of speech. But he's actually putting his finger on the spiritual reality behind the social failures of the UK, of Australia, of our whole world. Idolatry. Well, let me ask one more question. No... Other gods before me. Where does it matter most? You see, the Old Testament prophets, they knew, of course, that the other nations around Israel worshipped other gods. They were false gods. They were no gods at all. But the the nations worshipped them. But you know what? The prophets of God spent most of their time not condemning the nations around Israel, but condemning Israel itself. God's own people. They should have known better. They'd had all the experiences of knowing and seeing the living God at work. They'd, they'd experienced what God had done for them, rescuing them from slavery and oppression in Egypt and taking them to the promised land to be in relationship with God. They should have known better, but they swapped him for no gods at all. And they couldn't believe it. And it's the same for us Christians today, you see. We mustn't think that idolatry is sort of something out there, something that belongs to our out-there culture or other cultures around the world or other religions who have other problems. No. Israel was called, right, to be a light to the nations. How could they be a light to the nations if they were running after the same gods? And brothers and sisters, fellow followers of Jesus, we cannot bear witness to the living God if we're no different, if we're no different from those who worship the gods of our culture. If those same gods have found their way, their tentacles have found their ways into the church, so we've just bought into what the world is doing, where the church, perhaps we, have prostituted ourselves to the gods of our time and culture. We need to know that. We need to react I do need to wrap up, but I can't I can't finish without making this a little bit more personal, at least for myself. Because I've got to ask myself, what little gods have I allowed to kind of creep into my heart and into my mind? And you know, even as a follower of Jesus, even as your pastor, even as the lead pastor at City Light Church North Adelaide? What are those gods that have crept into my mind and into my imagination into my heart that have begun to shape my habits shape my thoughts about myself my thinking and my doing and maybe you could ask that of yourself too so it might be lust it almost certainly will be if you're a man like me might be achievement where an achievement in itself is not bad but when achievement kind of becomes that thing that defines who I am, that that can be a problem. I struggle there. Might even be success in, in gospel ministry, in Christian ministry. You know, what we call God's work becomes intertwined with my identity, my worth, my value, rather than God Himself reminding me and declaring to me that I'm a loved, beloved son of his saved by the blood of Jesus and I'm in, and he loves me. It might be self-pity. That's a a very comfortable little idol, right, that absorbs huge amounts of emotional energy and comes at a very heavy cost. It might be our self-image. Maybe it's too high, maybe it's too low, maybe your issue is pride, maybe it's false humility. You see, there's all kinds of things that can draw us away from loving God and serving him only. I really hope that the Holy Spirit will speak to you as as you think about that. Perhaps we should pray the prayer that King David prayed at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart, test me, and know my thoughts and see if there is any offensive way and lead me in the way everlasting. Perhaps we should join singing with William Cooper in his lovely old hymn, "O oh, for a closer walk with God, who said these words, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Brothers and sisters, God's word to us this morning is this. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of slavery to sin and death. I freed you from the tyranny of the devil I liberated you. I saved you. Now, you shall have no other gods before my face. Let's pray. Let's pray. Loving Father, you've told us that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it pierces to the depths of our thoughts, our minds, our hearts, our souls, even into our bones. Whether we preach or whether we are preached to, we need your word We thank you that your word comes to us as a word of grace, not only judgment, that it exposes our sins and our failures and our flaws and our foibles because you want to wash them away, you want forgiveness and you want us to run afresh to you and put our faith afresh in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come back to the cross now, as we're about to do in a moment, as we gather around the table of the Lord, Lord, we ask that you would lead us to examine our hearts and in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the light of your beautiful word, help us to put away all that is not of you. Lord, Father, we ask that you would make us more like Jesus and we ask it for our good, the good of our neighbour and ultimately, Lord, for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.